This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Croder, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Ariella Marshall, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology at Mayo Clinic to discuss COVID-associated coagulopathy. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Marshall. Thank you so much for the invitation. Glad to be here. So I thought we could kick things off. If you could tell us what is uh, this COVID-associated coagulopathy and, and why is it important to recognize this? Sure thing. So I think, you know, at the start of the COVID pandemic, scientists and clinicians started to realize that there were a number of laboratory patterns that were common amongst these patients who had severe COVID infections. And one of them, you know, was a coagulopathy, which is primarily um, manifested with an elevated D-dimer, in some cases a very significantly elevated D-dimer level. And in some cases we do see other markers that would classically be associated with disseminated intravascular coagulation, such as a low platelet count or an elevated prothrombin time, but that's not universally seen, um, whereas the elevated D-dimer is pretty you know, common in patients, especially with severe COVID infections. And it is important to see this, notice it, and diagnose it early on because the elevated D-dimer has been associated with poor outcomes in patients who have COVID infections. So both with increased risk of needing ICU level care as well as worse outcomes in terms of mortality. Um, and the same is true for kind of the overall picture of the coagulopathy. So patients who have also the elevated prothrombin time and the low platelet counts that kind of overall coagulopathic picture also have worse clinical outcomes. So that's the reason that it's important to think about this and identify it early on. I see, because recognize this really ties into uh, what we can expect for patients in their clinical course. Um, you mentioned you bring up like this coagulopathy in, in this, uh, this uh, disseminated uh, intravascular coagulation, uh, DIC, uh, that you, you bring up. So. I understand that DIC can come in a few different flavors, and I was wondering if you kind of help us understand how is this COVID-associated coagulopathy similar or different from other coagulopathies we might come across commonly in, in clinical practice? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the elevated D-dimer is a pretty universal marker of fibrinolysis, and it's certainly something we look for in DIC, but to look for overt or sometimes called decompensated DIC, we're really looking for four things, and so that includes, you know, the elevated D-dimer, but it also includes a low fibrinogen as well as thrombocytopenia and a prolonged prothrombin time because of consumption of the coagulation factors. We can see most of those with the COVID-associated coagulopathy, but one thing we've noticed is that due to the systemic inflammatory nature of COVID infection, we're actually much more commonly seeing patients with a significantly elevated fibrinogen rather than a reduced fibrinogen. So that's the opposite of what we might see in DIC where the fibrinogen is typically reduced because of consumption 
consumption. So in the COVID-associated coagulopathy, again, it's a very inflammatory condition, kind of a cytokine storm, so to speak, where we see elevated inflammatory levels, such as fibrinogen, also things such as elevated IL-6, elevated ferritin, other markers of inflammation. Um, so that's one thing that kind of differentiates the COVID-associated coagulopathy from kind of decompensated or overt DIC. Well, it's really helpful to know, given you started to name a couple of those lab tests that we tend to use in uh, it, when we're monitoring patients with coagulopathy, are there any recommended testing, uh, you know, lab tests we should be getting? And, you know, are these things that you get once uh, in a hospitalization or should we be trending these things? How, how do we approach this? Sure. So the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis recommends that every patient who is hospitalized for a COVID infection actually is tested for the D-dimer at the very least, and ideally also for the prothrombin time and the platelet count. Um, here at Mayo, we recommend kind of a full DIC profile, which is done in our special coagulation laboratory, and that includes the test that I just mentioned. It also does include the fibrinogen level, and it also includes the soluble fibrin monomer complex level. So that's you know a little bit more specific to DIC if it's elevated rather than just the D-dimer, which is a marker of overall fibrinolysis. So we're recommending that patients have this DIC profile on admission to the hospital. And then how often you test it really depends on their clinical course. So if somebody's, you know, has a fairly mild COVID infection, is able to stay on the medical floor as opposed to going to the ICU, and had you know, not significant abnormalities in their labs on admission, that doesn't necessarily need to be trended over their hospital stay. However, if somebody has a severe COVID infection, has major abnormalities in their labs on admission, and especially if they're in the ICU, that's probably something that should be trended, if not daily, at least every couple of days. There are situations situations where a patient might initially be admitted to the floor, and if they have a significantly elevated D-dimer, you know, even in the absence of other clinical decompensation, it might be worth considering a transition to ICU-level care because it may be a marker of more severe disease. Well, thanks for helping us kind of get a framework for testing. One point of clarification I just wanted to ask is we have a diversity of, of listeners, uh, some students listen to this podcast. Could you um, maybe explain what is that soluble fibrin monomer test? Um... Yeah, absolutely. So it's another kind of end product of the clotting cascade. You know, you form the clot and then you start to break the clot down. So it's considered, you know, in, you know, basically um, a group of lab tests, which are called fibrin degradation products. But what we've found in lab research is that is a very much more specific marker of DIC or of a systemic coagulopathy than the D-dimer is. So there's a, a lot of things that can lead to an elevated D-dimer, whether it be thrombosis, but also things like inflammation, trauma, liver disease, tissue injury. So D-dimer is very sensitive, but it's a non-specific marker of DIC, whereas that soluble fibrin monomer complex level, if it's significantly elevated, it's much more specific for a DIC type of picture. Excellent. Thank you very much for explaining that. For more COVID-19 education resources, 
visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education dash COVID dash 19. Let's rotate now uh, and kind of pivot to now the kind of clinical context now that we're talked about the labs and how is this COVID associated coagulopathy managed? You know, we're I was wondering if you can kind of take us through some clinical scenarios where, you know, what are your thoughts about kind of prophylactic uh, anticoagulation, therapeutic anticoagulation, and when somebody's had a thrombus, um, and then does this change at all uh, the way we approach uh, prophylactic transfusion in uh, coagulopathic patients? Sure. And I would say that, you know, from the clinical standpoint, this is the most challenging decision that we have to make, you know, as coagulation experts when we're asked to consult on a patient who has a COVID infection. So currently both the ISTH as well as us here at Mayo and most other institutions generally recommend that every patient who is admitted to the hospital who has a confirmed COVID infection is put on pharmacologic VTE prophylaxis. Um, um, knowing that there's a quite high risk of thrombosis with these infections. Um, most hospitalized patients, I would say, are already, you know, kind of automatically put on VTE prophylaxis, but very important to make sure that that's what's going on here. There are situations where, you know, maybe a patient has severe thrombocytopenia with a platelet count less than 25,000, you know, things like that, or if they have some active bleeding where obviously you wouldn't want to put them on pharmacologic prophylaxis, but the vast majority of hospitalized COVID patients should really be on VTE prophylaxis. And what kind of prophylaxis? You know, we're generally recommending enoxaparin or other low molecular rate heparin at a prophylactic dose that can be given once a day. And so there's a couple of reasons for why we would recommend that specifically. Um, so one is, you know, the two common regimens you can use for prophylaxis are the low molecular rate heparin once a day or unfractionated heparin three times a day. And from the patient standpoint, nobody wants to be getting injections three times a day if you can get it once a day. But also just for healthcare worker safety, if it's a patient with a known COVID, you know, infection, you don't want to be exposing somebody three times a day when they could be exposed only once a day. So that's one reason is the number of exposures. Um, also, you know, comparing to other potential anticoagulants, for instance, a direct oral anticoagulant like a Pixaban, theoretically that could be used for prophylaxis, but there's some evidence from these early trials and observations that you know, heparin itself may have more than an antithrombotic effect. There may also be an anti-inflammatory or an anti-complement effect. So there may be additional benefit of the heparin-based products. So for those two reasons, we generally recommend a prophylactic low molecular rate heparin once a day. Um, that said, unfortunately, it's been observed that almost one third of patients who are hospitalized with COVID, especially in the ICU, have developed thrombotic events despite the use of prophylactic anticoagulation. So most of those patients developed pulmonary emboli. Um, there are a few instances of arterial thrombotic events as well. So it is a good question to think about, about, you know, are there patients who would benefit from higher dose, so either kind of intermediate dose or even therapeutic dose anticoagulation, even if they don't have a confirmed clot. So I can give you one example, you know, patient with significantly elevated D-dimer, you know, 
8, 10, 15 times the upper limit of normal, even if there's not, you know, a clear evidence of thrombosis, you know, we have been recommending intermediate dose anticoagulation for these patients um, just as a safety measure. And the other thing being that we don't typically see bleeding in these patients. So likely the benefit of being on a higher dose of anticoagulation outweighs any risk of bleeding that you would get by increasing that dose. Um, there's some interest in putting everybody with significantly elevated D-dimer actually on therapeutic dose anticoagulation. We haven't started that practice here, but there are a couple of clinical trials that are either getting underway or already you know, just started um, with interest in this subject. So it's definitely something to keep our eye out for. Um, and then you had mentioned also the use of transfusion. So luckily we haven't seen a lot of bleeding in these patients. So typically the practice is not to transfuse to a number, so to speak, but really to only transfuse if somebody's actively bleeding. So it would be the same kind of criteria we would use for most hospitalized patients. So we wouldn't transfuse platelets unless somebody's platelet drop, you know, below 10 to 20,000 or so, or if there is evidence of clinical bleeding. And even if their prothrombin time and INR are prolonged, if they're not having any clinical evidence of bleeding, we wouldn't recommend giving something like FFP. Again, there's, as you well know, being in transfusion medicine, there's certainly risks of blood transfusion of any type of product. And so we're trying to minimize those risks, especially because the bleeding doesn't seem to be a primary feature of the COVID coagulopathy. Uh, you're making my bloody banker heart go pitter-patter when you talk about uh, that kind of uh, approach to transfusion. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's great for our listeners to kind of, kind of put a, a note or attack in what you were just saying there about how this is really, um, you know, a critical thing for patients, how we approach their uh, anticoagulation. And it sounds like, uh, you know, this is a space where things are rapidly changing as we're getting mm -hmm. new data. And so um, I know that we're going to have links in uh, the show notes below for some of the uh, papers and recommendations uh, that you've been uh, talking about so far. I was wondering if you could kind of round us out and close this, um, close this podcast out with, uh, you know, what are a few lessons that you have learned during this pandemic so far? I think this has challenged us uh, all in, in a variety of ways. And just if you could share some of your reflections with our listeners. Sure. You know, I think as a coagulation clinician, the biggest thing that I've seen is it really is an individualized decision for each and every patient about how to best manage their risk. Um, so I was talking to the fellows the other day about COVID coagulopathy, and I gave them two examples of, you know, cases that had very similar kind of lab findings, but really the management of the patient was quite different. Um, so just briefly, you know, we had one patient who, you know, was quite sick for a couple of days, very significantly elevated D-dimer. We decided to put him on an intermediate dose, um, enoxaparin, rather than the prophylactic dose. But he really, you know, otherwise did very well. And over the next five days, his D-dimer went down. 
he was very stable clinically. He was actually able to leave the hospital about four to five days later just with some home monitoring. And so that was kind of a, a success. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we had a very similar patient, you know, at the onset who came into the hospital, very significantly elevated D-dimer, but he rapidly decompensated, needed to go to the ICU, ultimately needed intubation, unfortunately had very significant renal dysfunction. So we were unable to use the low molecular weight heparin. And so unfortunately we had very few options for him. So we ended up, you know, putting on a, him on an unfractionated heparin drip. But when the infection's that severe, you know, he, luckily he is still with us, you know, still in the ICU, but there hasn't been that much of an improvement in things yet. And so, you know, somebody can come into the hospital and have, you know, one set of lab values Use, but it really depends on the severity of the infection, the patient's other comorbidities and, you know, how they do over those first couple of crucial days that kind of sets the stage for what the ultimate outcome is. So I've just learned that, you know, it's a very difficult to predict thing um, and it requires a lot of individual level decision making with the patient and the patient's care team. Thank you for highlighting that. I think that's wonderful for those of us in practice to be reminded of and then also our student listeners to appreciate that, you know, there's recommendations that come out and guidelines and certainly we, we work towards following them in general, but, you know, there's still a lot of individualized patient decision making that is the profession of, of being the physician. And we're applying them, and at least as you've articulated very well in this podcast, you're applying them based on the basic science on what we know and why it works a certain way. And you're using that in your judgment how to individualize. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for rounding with us today on Lab Medicine Rounds. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to have the chance to talk about a very important topic. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you have enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.